This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, we're doing a new crowdfunding campaign at patreon.com backslash kickasspolitics. That's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. With Patreon, you can pledge a certain amount each month, and in return for helping to sustain the show, you're going to get some great new benefits like back episodes, exclusive content, show merchandise, shout-outs on the podcast, video hangouts, invitations to live events, and more. Again, go to patreon.com backslash kickasspolitics. Thanks for your support, and thanks for continuing to listen. And now, enjoy the podcast. I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass Politics. My guest today is six-time Emmy and Golden Globe-winning actor, director, and writer, Alan Alda. You probably know him best for his beloved role as Captain Hawkeye Pierce during his 11 years starring on the hit TV series MASH. He received 21 Emmy nominations for his work on MASH, winning five Emmys and six Golden Globes for his acting, writing, and directing on that show. And the final episode of MASH, which he starred in, wrote, and directed, still holds the record as the most-watched episode in the history of television. Alan Alda has also received Emmy nominations for his other memorable roles in the HBO film And the Band Played On and the Showtime television movie Clubland, as well as nominations for his acting on television series like The Blacklist, 30 Rock, ER, and West Wing, for which he won a Best Supporting Actor Emmy for his role as Senator Arnold Vinnick. Most recently, he's starred alongside Louis C.K. and Steve Buscemi in Horace and Pete, a popular web series created by Louis C.K. He's had three Tony Award nominations for his roles on stage and a Drama Desk Award for his role in the Broadway revival of Glengarry Glen Ross. On the big screen, Alan Alda has starred in Woody Allen classics like Crimes and Misdemeanors, Manhattan Murder Mystery, and Everyone Says I Love You, as well as movies like Flirting with Disaster, Murder at 1600, What Women Want, Flash of Genius, Tower Heist, Bridge of Spies, and The Aviator, for which he received an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. But in addition to his acting roles, Alan Alda hosted 14 seasons of the acclaimed documentary television series Scientific American Frontiers on PBS, which explored cutting-edge advances in science and technology. It inspired in him a lifelong love of science, and it gave him the idea to found the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University in New York. These days, he spends much of his time traveling to various universities teaching scientists and medical professionals how to become better communicators. On today's podcast, Alan Alda will talk about the need for scientists to become better at explaining the important work they're doing to the public, the media, Congress, grant writers, and even other scientists. And he'll explain how he's helping them do just that, using, among other things, improvisational acting techniques that Alan Alda learned when he was first starting out in show business and a challenge he created for scientists to explain how a flame works to 11-year-olds. He'll also talk about teaching doctors and nurses to become clearer and more empathetic when dealing with their patients, 
Plus, we'll discuss his encounter with a doctor who saved his life in the mountains of Chile, the complicated love life of Albert Einstein, and of course, we'll talk about MASH and find out just how accurate all of those TV surgeries really were. Coming up with the delightful Alan Alda in just a moment. to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. He's one of America's most recognizable and acclaimed actors. He's been a star on Broadway, an Oscar nominee for The Aviator, and the only person to ever win Emmys for acting, writing, and directing during his 11 years on MASH. But also, he has a very big interest in science. For 14 seasons, he hosted Scientific American Frontiers on PBS. And more recently, in 2009, he founded the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, where he also teaches and goes from university to university as a self-described Johnny Appleseed of science communication. Alan Alda, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> It's interesting that science and medicine have influenced your art, most famously as Hawkeye Pierce on MASH, but also you played a doctor on ER. Uh, and I played Richard Feynman on Broadway. I was, great, yeah. Great American uh, physicist. Yes, yes. Right from near here in Pasadena. Yeah. At Caltech. Um, you, I think you also wrote a book on Marie Curie that I saw. I wrote a play about Marie Curie. Oh, and I okay. Wrote a and an Einstein play, and too. A, right? a, a reading for the stage about uh, Einstein, which which has been done in New York, Moscow, and oh, wow. Melbourne, Australia. Oh, yeah, so terrific. <laughs> wow. The globe. Now, yeah. What was your take on Einstein? You know, whenever I write about um, a great scientist, I try to show... Some of the science, I try not to make it overwhelming for the audience, but I, right. I, I think it's good. I mean, that's their work, and if we can introduce them a little to their work in an interesting way, that's good. But mostly I try to show the human side of them. I think it's, to me, it's very important. Yeah. I want to I be able to relate to these people as fellow people. They have some of the same failings that we do, the rest of us do, and they have aspirations so similar to ours they want to be paid attention to they want to succeed at what they're trying to accomplish and they're usually trying to accomplish extremely difficult things so there's a kind of a dramatic story there about another person who could be you if if you were smart enough or if i were smart <laughs> yeah that's enough. an understatement yeah. in my case <laughs> well in my case too well, the Einstein one, I think I read about it. Isn't it about his relationship with his wives? Yeah. Which was very complicated. Very complicated <laughs> relationship. I mean, it's it's amazing. This guy was so smart, he could figure out invisible parts of the universe. But he didn't have a really good way of coping with his with the people he loved the most in his life. He, yeah. His first wife, he not only divorced but she wanted to stay with him and he wrote her a, a letter that said if you if you insist on living in the house then you <laughs> this is awful yeah bring me three meals a day don't talk to me don't talk <laughs> to my child don't don't talk about me it was awful and then yeah. with the second wife for a while 
The second wife didn't know if it was she who was going to marry Einstein or her daughter, who was only oh my about twenty or something. <laughs> he he had he had an eye for both of them. It, it's, yeah. it, I mean that's that's at least human like us, and maybe a little yeah. more human. <laughs> <laughs> and and it sort of speaks to what you're doing now because it's uh, talking about trying to give scientists, I guess, better people skills, <laughs> yeah. better communication Well, it's true, skills. and it's something we all need. It's not just scientists who need it. And we yeah. also work with uh, doctors and nurses, all people in the health field. The idea is to help them find out how they can become really connected to the people they're trying to communicate with, to get an open channel between them and the people that they're talking to or writing for, you know, whatever kind of communication they're trying to have. We have kind of, I would say, very innovative ways of helping them do that. When I first heard about this, when you were speaking at Caltech, I guess mm -hmm. a couple of months ago, I thought to myself, what a terrific idea. People have this image of scientists like everyone in those fields are, are like the guys from the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, you know, they're, <laughs> they're not. They're very, yeah. I find scientists to be very interested in other people, very interested in trying to get you to understand what they do. And many of them have a great sense of humor. I think, I think it's hard <laughs> to have a really good sense of humor if you're not smart. And, and they have... They're really smart, so they can see shades of meaning that make you laugh. It's such a great idea. There's such a need for it. I mean, I kind of look at it and I think, well, how come no one ever thought of this? This is such well, a fantastic idea. Well, some people have. You know, I, yeah. I didn't know that when we started. I thought yeah. we were unique, but we were just rare. Yeah. And um, well, How did it dawn on you? Because it had changed my life. Improvising had changed my okay. life. And here I had spent 12 years or so interviewing scientists yeah. and I realized that the thing that made the interviews work was that they weren't conventional interviews it wasn't me asking a set of questions yeah. it was a conversation it was an right. improvisation right on where we made American. real contact and the real them came out of them because they were relating to another person they knew that when I asked the question I really wanted to hear an answer I could understand. And if I didn't hear an answer I could understand, I bothered them until I did. <laughs> and that made them become alert to me as a person. And so you saw yeah. a human interaction on the screen. And when we finished the show, I thought, they, we ought to help them get to that kind of relating naturally all the mm -hmm. time, no matter who's at the other end of the conversation. Well, I'm curious, when you're dealing with scientists, people who deal in something that so very few people on this planet understand often, do you ever encounter a reticence to demystify what it no, is that no. they do? No, the real problem is that they, like all of us, forget that people don't understand things as deeply as they understand them. <laughs> so they'll use words that we don't get. They'll talk about a process that we are not familiar with and and they skip steps because the steps seem so obvious and then you lose them because they they leave out this <laughs> crucial little baby step to get you to the next thing i know that i've sat at scientific lectures and sometimes it does seem that the lecturer is completely unaware when they're losing the audience yeah yeah, it happens very frequently. And, and, and I want to emphasize, not only to scientists. Anything. You know, we, I mean, business people. Yeah. IT departments 
have trouble talking to the board and the, <laughs> and the executive officer. And the CEO has trouble talking to the IT people because they don't understand his business terms. We all have the same problem, but what we do that's unusual that, that helps people make this contact with the other person, relate to the other person in this kind of intimate, personal way, is that we start off by teaching them improvisation. That was so interesting to me. Do you come from an improv background? I do. I, on your bio, you don't mention Second City, but Second City mentions you as an alum. Oh, so oh really? It's on sure. their bio? <laughs> yeah, they, they claim you, which well, is yeah, pretty good. I, I, did, I worked at Second City for about two weeks, Oh, but, but I, I did a, an improv. I was part of an improv group in a cabaret uh, one summer at Hyannisport okay. in the same hotel where John F. Kennedy made his press conferences and I would be him in a press conference downstairs (laughs) in the basement every night in the cabaret. And the reporters who had asked him questions in the morning would come down and ask me the same questions. But but all this hadn't appeared in the newspaper yet. So I didn't know what they were talking about, but it was improvised. And that was a background for me to, to learn, to begin to learn about improvising. But that was what I would call guts improvising but they just threw us okay. on stage and we had to make the best of it right and we had to be funny right so which the, is a lot of pressure for a right. scientist not only well yeah <laughs> but we don't want scientists to try to be funny we're not trying to do that yeah what we base our improvising classes on is a kind of improvising that i also did for about six months and it was the only training i had as an actor the only formal training but it was one of the best things I'd, I went through either as an actor or as a person. These were improvisational games uh, developed by a woman called Viola Spolin. She's the mother of improvisation in the United States. Almost all the okay. improvising that we see now. Huh. Wow. Her son started Second City. The reason it's useful to us, training scientists, is that when you do it enough, you become accustomed to making contact with the other person, reading the other person. You can't play these games without reading the other person. And then when you turn to the audience, all of a sudden your tone is different. Your words are different. You you don't stand behind the lectern and hide. You come out in the open and you're vulnerable to them. And it makes a tremendous difference. It even makes a difference. Once you get good at that, it makes a difference how you write for people who aren't there. Oh, really? Because you're thinking about what's this person going to think when they read this sentence? Am I ready for the next sentence? Are they ready for the next sentence? Yeah. And I I think at some point I I was listening to one of your lectures and it was interesting because you said as an actor, it's less for you about memorizing the lines than being able to work off of the other person in the scene. And so that's kind of what you're teaching. I don't learn the lines so much as learn the uh, emotional... um, interplay between us yeah so so that that's that helps me know what the lines are because emotion makes you remember yeah if if i know how i'm feeling at a given moment in response to the other person when i hear that other person when they're finally there the other actor in the scene and i hear them say this to me and it makes me have this certain feeling i know pretty much what i'm going to say and if i've gone over it enough i know exactly what i'm going to say (laughs) I watched one of the classes that you teach at Stony Brook, and it was interesting. They did a role-playing exercise where you would have the scientist try to explain what he does to the other person who 
uh, takes on the character of, say, a trucker or a, yeah. or a waitress or a, yeah. a graphic designer, usually someone who's not in that field. Right. And yeah. usually it's somebody with a, a kind of emotionally charged relationship with the scientist, like a, <laughs> like an overbearing mother or something like that, <laughs> so that they have to talk to them in terms of that emotional relationship. And the idea yeah. is they're explaining their science to this person. So the scientist becomes accustomed to the idea that there's more than one way to talk about your science. You become aware that it's possible to talk in a way that conveys emotion to another person. And that's how yeah. they understand you and that's how they remember what you have to say. Yeah. And when I was watching one of these classes that you were teaching, uh, you said, make it personal. Yeah. If you can, if there's any way to tie in your work to a personal story, something mm -hmm. about your family or, or your life, then that gets it across. Or also I'm sure, uh, metaphors. Yeah. I, I had Michio Kaku on the other yeah, day he and he, all he talks is in metaphors, <laughs> which is great. Cause that's what people understand. Yeah. And one what of the, was one of his great metaphors? Gosh, you know, he, he had a metaphor for the unified theory, and I'm, I still don't think I quite understand that. But well, you could, I'm still working on that You could one. probably use any metaphor for that. <laughs> no, nobody gets it. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. If it's, if it's a theory of everything, then yeah. uh, any metaphor will do, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back to talk more with Alan Alda. Back in just a moment. Hey folks, do you like reading, but you find it's getting harder and harder to make time to curl up with a good book? Well, there's a solution. Give audiobooks a try. They're perfect for your commute to work or if you're working out at the gym, a relaxing bath, or any time really. And right now, you can take an audiobook for a spin with a special promotion just for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics to get a free 30-day trial and download any of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audiobook of your choice. And now, back to more with actor, writer, director, and science communicator, Alan Alda. There's another aspect of this. You're all about simplifying the message, simplifying their work without I think, dumbing I, it down. You know the word simplifying? Oh, yeah. I, you're, you're, you, in general, I, I certainly agree with that, but I'm a little worried about the word simplify because it doesn't land well on scientists. It sounds <laughs> like we're asking them to dumb it down. Yeah. And that's the last thing we want to do. We really caution people about dumbing it down. I would say yeah. clarify it. Clarify, okay. And I think clarity is really a great thing to strive for and all we do. And I don't think science was ever hurt by too much clarity. <laughs> well, one of the great tools that you use in this is you started this challenge called the Flame Challenge or the Flame Prize, which is all about teaching them and rewarding them for being able to simplify it to, I guess, what is it, the, the understanding of an 11-year-old? An 11-year-old, yeah. Well, it came out of a, of a story from my life. I was writing an article for a, a science magazine about communication, and I thought I was getting pretty boring. And I thought, <laughs> I, I, I should be able to start this with a personal story. That's what I teach. Why, why don't I do that? And then I suddenly realized, oh, my God, I got a story. When I was 11 years old, 
I was fascinated by the flame at the end of a candle. I couldn't figure out what it was. I'd never seen anything else around me like that. It was hot. You could put your finger through it if you went fast enough. What was it? What was going on in the flame? Why was it giving off light? So I said to a teacher, what's a flame? What, what is it? What's happening in there? And she said, she just thought for a minute. She said, oxidation. <laughs> Which, now I had two things I didn't understand. Thanks a bunch. Yeah. <laughs> so years went by. And now I'm sitting writing this article and I thought, and I told the story because it really is something that shows you what's wrong with jargon. Yeah. I mean, it, it's true. It, it, it involves oxidation, but that doesn't tell you what's happening in a flame if you've never learned the word and you don't know all the other things involved. So by the time I got to the end of that article, I thought, I think I got a contest here. And I invited the scientists reading it to send in explanations of what a flame is. Answer the question, what is a flame? So that an 11-year-old could understand it and be engaged by it, really be That's interested brilliant. in it. And real 11-year-olds would be the judges. <laughs> That's even better. So we've done it now for about five years. Each year oh, we cool. changed the question. This year the question was, what is sound? And we had about 26,000 oh. kids from all over the world. So it's a, wow. it's a great thing. And the scientists, yeah. now we, here's what I didn't expect. I thought it was just going to be a learning experience for the scientists, how hard it is mm -hmm. to, to make it clear to an 11-year-old. It turned out the kids loved this because it puts them in charge of the learning process. Yeah. And they're able to say to a scientist, that's a very good explanation, but it could be a little better. <laughs> what, what, what are, say, an example of the most recent one with sound? How did they communicate it to an 11-year-old, well, the winner? They, get, they have the option of doing a written entry or a video entry. Oh, And uh, I can invite your audience to go to flamechallenge.org, okay. O-R-G, and they can see videos of the this year's winning uh, entry, uh, other years' entries, and they're 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 really wonderful. The first year, a doctoral student, an American studying in Austria, heard about the the contest with two weeks to go, and he told his boss, "I'm tired of repairing the equipment in this lab. I'm going to take two weeks off, and I'm going to enter this contest, and I hope I win." He went home and told his wife and young daughter. You won't see me for two weeks. I'll be down in the basement. <laughs> he he made a cartoon. He wrote it. Oh, wow. He wrote a, new, for a song for it. He performed the song. He narrated it. And he won the contest. And he, it was such a good video that he got offered a job making videos on television. <laughs> and then he offered me a job. He offered you a job? <laughs> Did you take it? No, I was too busy, but I really, I was very grateful. But he, cool. he's going to be a star communicator. Well, and, and I feel like you're hitting this at just the right time because there is something out there in the air when I keep hearing this buzzword, whether I'm watching the Science Channel or Discovery or people like Neil deGrasse Tyson or Michio Kaku are now being described as science communicators. Yeah. And I had never heard that term until probably just a couple of years ago. You know, what's funny about that is there was a time when the better you were at communicating science, the less respect you got from other scientists. They, they assumed you were I dumbing it down. I could see that. Yeah, they, I could they, understand that. They called it for a while the Carl Sagan effect <laughs> because he was actually denied membership in, a, in the, the National Academy of Science, I think, because some people said, no, he's too popular. 
but really all scientists all over the world are beginning to realize that it, it's fine to be popular as long as you're accurate. In fact, you want, you need people in the people in the public, people who are policymakers and funders. You need them to understand mm-hmm. what you're doing. Yeah. Who would give money to something they don't understand? I wouldn't. Right. And neither would the scientist. So is that your audience? Who, who I mean, not your audience, but the scientist's scientist audience. Who, well, the, are, who do you want th- them this to be is able very to target better? Who their audience is is so interesting. It's the general public. It's Congress. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's <laughs> That's a tough crowd. Foundations and other sources of funding. Okay. Now, here's where it gets really fascinating. It's other scientists. Really? Because if they're not in the exact same field, they don't understand... They're in, they don't understand as well as they should. They understand huh. about at the level sometimes of an informed layperson. Really? And as a result, there are scientists who ought to be collaborating but aren't because they're not aware of one another's work. Now, here's the really amazing thing to me that I'm just beginning to hear from scientists. It helps them do their own work better when they learn how to boil down what they have to say to its essential elements they focus better on their own work. I've heard this from several scientists. Well, that would make sense because it's often getting out of the bubble and having an interaction with the outside world from someone else's perspective or a simpler perspective that leads to those aha moments, the light bulb turning on. I think that's true. I think you can also realize that when you can pithily get to the heart of what you do, you see it somewhat with fresh eyes. Yeah, that's really that's really helpful. Yeah, because before you do that, you're concerned with all the details involved, and the details aren't always all all connected. I do a little bit of this, I go over, over, do a little bit of that. But when you step back and see the bigger picture, you say, mm-hmm. "That's what I'm working on. That's what I'm after. That's what I'm trying." And we've heard this from a couple of really senior scientists who. Uh, are not buttering us up. They're, t- they're, they're glad that they're, they're doing better science. Well, it's almost like one of those scenes from a movie where someone's working, you have an Einstein or someone who's working on a problem forever and ever and ever, and then he sees a kid bouncing a ball down the street, <laughs> and there's suddenly this synapse. <laughs> oh, my God, gravity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's an not apple quite, falls from the I tree. Know, yeah, I'm glad you said that, because I just heard myself talking, and it sounds like I'm, what I'm saying is improv cures cancer, but I don't, it's not, it doesn't solve every problem in the world. But I am amazed at some of the reports we're getting back, so I, 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 have, to be, uh, I, I have to tell you about them. Speaking of cancer, one of the aspects of this is actually dealing with healthcare professionals yeah. and teaching them better techniques to communicate with their staff and patients. So you deal with medical students and doctors, especially when you're talking about trying to communicate with patients in terms of life and death, something very personal. Oftentimes, doctors get perceived as cold or mm. arrogant. Is part of your job to help them communicate? empathy and humility a little yeah. bit better yeah for we help them develop hum, uh, empathy mm-hmm. so that they can sense the other person in the way we were talking about before to find out by by the way they talk to them by the way they listen to them as they talk and, and that includes getting their symptoms from them not just tell me what's happening but tell me your story you know in okay. a way find out more because sometimes they'll tell you things that are not in their list of symptoms, but all of a sudden you've got a clue to what's going on with them in terms of their health. 
And when the patients report on the care that they received, a number of the questions on the questionnaire have to do with how the doctor related to them. So they're really, in a way, clamoring for training like this because it it affects the bottom line, for one thing. But it also, this is amazing, it also affects their health. The health outcomes of people who who feel they're being spoken to by an empathic doctor, they get better faster. Well, certainly, I mean, there are studies yeah. that show this. I certainly, if you feel that you're dealing with someone who is more empathetic and who you can relate to better, you're probably more likely to follow their advice. That's a lot, the first a lot thing. Closer. If you follow their advice, you take mm-hmm. the medication, you trust them yeah. more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I always think of you know someone goes for a biopsy, and then the doctor comes in and he says, "Okay, we have your results. Your results came out negative." And then they the, the patient starts bawling because yeah, <laughs> right. he doesn't or worse, understand it came what out that positive. Means. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, negative for know. everyone else's mind, yeah. negative is bad. You, you can be sure that's one of the things we talk about. <laughs> yeah. That that you've got to talk in the language that the person understands. Well, one great example of this, uh, you talk about how you were filming a scene for Scientific American Frontiers up on a mountain in Chile when you had a bit of a health scare, and it led to an interesting interaction with one of the local surgeons there. Yeah, What I, happened there? Well, I had an obstruction. It wasn't an obstruction. It was uh, my intestine got crimped, and I lost my blood supply in about a yard of my intestine. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was the most painful thing. I've been told it's the most painful thing you can feel, wow. even worse than childbirth. And I was told that by women who have enjoyed both of these things. Yeah. And I, so, I imagine being up at some high elevation with yeah. not a lot of oxygen, that probably doesn't help. <laughs> I, I'm probably not 8,000 feet up. So they took me down to this little hospital in La Serena, Chile. And there was this wonderful surgeon there, middle of the night. He knew exactly what was wrong with me. And he had this wonderful way of explaining it to me. It was the best science communication I've ever experienced, and, and at just the right time, too. He said, something's gone wrong with your intestine, and we have to, we have to cut out the bad part and sew the two good ends together. And that's perfect. Yeah. Because that's absolutely accurate. You, can, mm-hmm. you can't be more accurate speaking those same words in Latin. Yeah. Just more unintelligible. And I was I was happy for him to do it because I understood what the yeah. problem was. And he was looking at me in the eye. He was r- making sure that I understood him. And I was getting the effect of that gaze, yeah. you know. There was I had his attention and he and I knew he cared about how I felt about this. It was a very important and, moment. And you knew what he was talking about. You well, actually I, came up with the medical term for yeah, it. Yeah, because I had done those <laughs> operations on MASH. I was trying to get a laugh out of the doctor. You know, <laughs> I should have just said, quick operate. I'll take the laugh later. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and I think, uh, didn't he say that he learned, uh, he, 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 he was first got interested MASH. from he watching, watching MASH. Yeah, he was watching MASH while I was yeah. shooting it. He was in high school at the time. Yeah, but he, he did have other medical training other than just watching uh, yes, he had MASH, a little. Right? Uh, yes, he was. I hope. Watch Dr. Welby. Oh, okay. All, all the shows. Yeah. Like Donald Trump says. <laughs> yeah. I watch the shows. Watch the shows. <laughs> no, this, this uh, Dr. Zepeda, Nelson Zepeda, who is now a family friend, and we, we, we've had vacations with his family. I mean, oh, I, I, owe, wow. I owe him and his wife my life. 
since he mentioned MASH, when you were working on MASH for, what, 11 years playing a doctor, how accurate was that? Now that you are into science and looking back yeah. and... <laughs> it was as accurate medically as we could make it. Really? In the beginning, okay. it wasn't so. The first few weeks, we made some horrible blunders. We were went from one patient to another without changing our gloves. I mean, talking about operating on a patient oh, yeah. and not changing gloves. We just didn't know about that. So then we had a nurse on the set. And in, I think from the very beginning, we had, yeah, from the very beginning, we had Walter Deschel, who was himself a surgeon and very knowledgeable about storytelling. And he would help us devise ailments and wounds and that kind of thing that we could tell as a story. Okay. So he could he could pick the right ailment Interesting. for the so story. He kind of was a catalyst for some of the the plot lines. As a matter of fact, he and I wrote one of the episodes together. Really? Where uh, the, we only had a half an hour to get uh, a vein graft from one patient to another. And the the, the show ran in real time with a clock in the corner ticking off the 30 minutes. So that was real fun. time for the surgery. Real time, real time for the surgery, real time for the show. And we had a we had a great time writing that. And he's been a friend all these years, almost 45 years now. Amazing how long the show is yeah. how long ago it started. And, and now people still love it. Now Walter Deschel helps us when we when we uh, go to a medical school, he'll he'll give a talk and get the uh, workshop started and he'll be there during the workshop to help the, because we ne yeah. we must have a doctor um, who's taking care of business because they, they're not going to trust mm -hmm. somebody from the theater department to teach them right. how to do medicine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. So, the, yeah. but, but he understands how it goes. And this, this, uh, the whole medical thing was spearheaded by a wonderful doctor at Stony Brook, Yvonne Kaplan Liss, who, uh, was just a dynamo. Every, every time she goes to a medical school or a hospital, we find out we have a new affiliate. We've got about 17 <laughs> affiliated universities and medical schools all across yeah. the country. Yeah, because you go to other, uh, it's not just at Stony Brook. You oh, yeah. travel no, and lecture we, and they put on last programs year, all Last over. year we did uh, over 100 workshops around wow. the country. And in Australia, we now affiliated with the uh, uh, Australian National University. Is there a problem with society, perhaps, that the public is a little bit lazy when it comes to science? We have this where, you know, we say, well, I'm no rocket science. And we act as if we don't really deserve to know these things. Yeah. And unless we're open to it, then, you know, why bother? I can't blame the public. It's not the really? public's job. When I don't know something, it's not my job. Mm -hmm. People who are busy rearing their children, learning how to do their work, making it in a career... I don't blame them for not knowing quantum mechanics or what, <laughs> yeah. how a black hole works and that kind yeah. of thing. I mean, it's a job of those people who spend their lives exploring these mysteries and mm -hmm. are thrilled by what they learn right. in that exploration to introduce mm -hmm. other people to the thrill of discovering nature and how it works. It's glorious. It's a wonderful thing. It's like poetry. It's like music. I mean, imagine if we had a time when people said, there'll be no more music, so just forget about that. Well, hmm. that's what we got now with science. Yeah. Why, yeah, why should we live schools. without the pleasure of knowing how things work? It really is fun. I don't know anybody yeah. who isn't interested when they get it explained in a way they can understand. Yeah, and that's the best thing when you can get 
anyone in any field to convey their excitement and their enthusiasm about whatever it is that they do. Yeah. Well, this has been so much fun. This is such a neat program that you have here. Before we go, I just want to congratulate you because the final episode of MASH still holds the record, which you directed that episode, still holds the record for the most watched episode of television. Yeah. I don't know if this has occurred to you, but now that viewership is so fragmented between Netflix and cable, that record will probably stand for all eternity. I don't <laughs> well, think we, there will ever be a larger audience that will you, watch you a television well, someday program. Someday they'll direct programs direct to our brain, and then everybody will get the same feed. Right, yeah. Right. <laughs> that's but true. I, That's nice. Thank you for that. But, you know, it, what's interesting is I, I really am interested in not so much the past. I'm very proud of right. what we did, and that's fun that it was a record-setting uh, showing of, of, of that last episode. But I'm, I just did a show with Louis C.K. that's on his website now called Horace and Pete. I'm oh, as fun. proud of that as anything I've ever done because it's new, it's fresh, and he's a kind of a genius. And I'm, I'm yeah. so glad to have had the chance to work with him. I do stuff that interests me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very lucky I have the chance to do that yeah. now. I get what, what, among the things that people send me. If it really interests me, whether it looks like it's going to be seen by a lot of people or not, if, yeah. it's, if it looks like it's going to be fun to do, then then I uh, then I'm attracted yeah. to it. Well, you've always chosen very quality roles. I've never seen you in a movie that I was like, eh, that's kind of I'll a piece of junk. I'll have to send you some but, links. Oh, okay, <laughs> fair enough. Well, I mean, how many times have you worked with Woody Allen? I'm a huge Woody Allen. Yeah, guy. yeah, three yeah. three pictures, three pictures. Yeah, what, what is he like to work with? Well, we when I worked with him, up. he didn't talk much. I don't know. He okay. may he may talk more now. I don't know. But I, you and I have talked more. <laughs> maybe now it was just we, you. Maybe no, he didn't like maybe, you. Maybe maybe something wrong with me. <laughs> but he was uh, he he's really brilliant, and I I loved working with him. Yeah. Well, I'm a huge fan of your work, and even a huge fan of this new work that you're doing. It's such a great idea. There's such a need for it. Congratulations on what you're doing at the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science. Where can people go to learn more about it? Well, you could go to uh, Center for Communicating Science dot org. I think it's O-R-G. Okay. Yeah. Or you could look me up in science and on Google and it'll okay. take you to it. Okay. And you have some great videos there of your lectures and the classes that you guys do. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. That's very, I love really that you're really interested stuff. in talking about this because, you know, it's a, it's a large part of my life now. And I've, it really thrills me to see, to see scientists blossom. We, yeah. In the past six years, we've trained about 10,000 scientists wow. and people 10, in the medical. Thousand. Yeah, that's a lot of people. That's fantastic. And and we see over and over again how well it works. And it just, it's thrilling. Well, folks, go check it out. It's just fantastic work. It's great. And it's such a great idea. And good for you for taking this on. <laughs> thank you. I, it's so amazing. Alan Alda, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Alan Alda for coming on the show. Really, really cool work that he and his colleagues are doing at the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science. And you can learn more about it, watch videos of some of their lectures, and help support their efforts by going to centerforcommunicatingscience.org. You can also keep up with Alan Alda at alanalda.com or on Twitter at at alanalda. Finally, I'd encourage you to read Alan Alda's highly entertaining autobiographies, Things I've Overheard While Talking to Myself, 
and never have your dog stuffed and other things I've learned. I'll include an Amazon link where you can order those books in the show notes for this episode and on our website at kickasspolitics.com. Or if you'd prefer to listen to the audio versions, you can download those for free through that special trial offer just for our listeners at audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Please subscribe to Kickass Politics on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. And you can also help us reach our fundraising goal for the year and get rewarded by donating to our Patreon campaign at patreon.com backslash kickasspolitics. Follow us on Twitter at at kapolitics or visit kickasspolitics on Facebook. And while you're there, recommend Kickass Politics to your friends on your social media. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass Politics. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.